0: And welcome to where We're checking out the dark side of DC. We're here to recap and review Vertigo comics, starting with the big three: Sandman, Hellblazer, Preacher. I am Eric, I'm Sean, and today we are covering Hellblazer number 41 through 43. Because we are the aforementioned guys Yes, that's who we are. We are finally at Garth Ennis, we are finally at Dangerous Habits, and we are finally in this episode. Gonna cover one of my favorite comic books of all time, Hellblazer number 42. A drop of the hard stuff. Previously on Hellblazer, well, nothing much that really matters. This is kind of a relaunch for the character. Kind of a starting point. Yeah, it does come up a couple of different times that his father has recently died. Yes. That happened in the Family Man story arc. Family Man was a serial killer. He wanted to kill John. He killed John's dad. Yeah. To get at him. Yeah, and John blames himself. Perhaps more because he and his father hated each other than because he really had anything to do with the family man finding his father. But right, this is the first Garth Ennis issue of this book, and do you know off the top of your head how long the Garth Ennis run was? It's around 40 issues. It's around to 8085. Okay. Well, all right. We start with Hellblazer number 41, The Beginning of the End. Written by Garth Ennis. Pencils by Will Simpson. Inks by Mark Pennington. Colors by Tom Zuiko. And the cover is by Tom Conti. It is a London cityscape. One of the signs is advertising some kind of scary skeleton store. Yeah, spooky scary skeletons. And in set, Constantine's Eye. Well, that takes care of the Halloween requirement. Happy Halloween, everybody. Spooky scary skeletons. Happy Halloween. Boo! <laughs> Also, later in this uh, episode, there'll be Satan. Hopefully not as a guest appearance. (laughs) (laughs) We were hoping we could get, like, Garth Ennis or Jamie Delano on the show. We managed to get the Lord of Flies. (laughs) I mean, there was that time that Neil Gaiman showed up. That dude was so weird. This is basically the ongoing format for all of, uh, all of the Tom Conti covers in this arc. Got kind of a scene and a little box inset set with an image of John's face or eye. Yeah, this is a great series of covers. In addition to my fondness for Hellblazer number 42, I also have a great fondness for Hellblazer number 42's cover. Yeah, these are remarkably moody. And this is a sort of a grimy cityscape that we get here. But enough about the cover. Let's talk about page one. We got a slow zoom on a trench-coated back in the window of Frankie's Cafe. Springtime. Everything wakes up and gets on with it. Everything carries on living. All except for me. I'm dying. So, this is very decompressed, right? Yeah, very much so. We devote a single page to some art that is really just kind of establishing a mood and a short bit of narration. Yeah. But I like how he gets right down to it. Well, I'm used to seeing Garth Ennis work with Steve Dillon, Mm -hmm. and that team definitely produces very cinematic panel layouts. And this is one of those as well. Yeah, I've seen some Garth Ennis scripts, and they're really written that way. Okay, yeah. The Punisher omnibus comes with several scripts. Okay, so he writes in camera move. Yeah, kind of. But yeah, he's kicking off the story right from the beginning, throwing his uh, hat into the ring as a a major influence on the character by setting off right from the beginning, Constantine is dying. Right. Yeah, ballsy to open that way. You know, you just got the character. What's the, what, you're going to have him dying on the first page. Yeah, makes his presence felt immediately as the writer. And this narration is like, we're used to purple narration from Constantine. How did you think that this fit in the spectrum of purpleness? Yeah, that's an interesting question. It's pulpy, but it's not really as purple as we've come to expect. It's light on the bombastic metaphors. Right. Page two is the title page. It's also a full-page splash of Constantine sitting emotionlessly. A cup of coffee, a pack of cigarettes, and a book of matches. Or no, a box of matches in front of him. Right, the smoke's an easy reach. I never thought it would be like this, John says, and he monologues for this page and the next page about how he thought he was special. He kicks demon ass, he walks alone. Page three is also a full splash page of Constantine alone. He never thought it would be like this. He thought he would die how he lived, push it too far, be a little too slow one day, and hell would get him. He never thought his death would be ordinary. Here he's invoking, you know, his real dangerous habit. We're going to touch on smoking pretty heavily, we're going to touch on drinking, but. His real addiction is trying his luck against hell. Interesting. Well, yeah, as he's talking about how ordinary his death is going to be, we're very closely focused on his action of lighting a cigarette. Right. We go to a flashback. We found out that sometime about a week ago, John woke up with blood in his mouth. Yeah, he's (laughs) coughing up blood, lots and lots of blood, more than he thought he could live through. Yeah, and... He vomits out something solid that lands in the sink, and he realizes he's just puked up a piece of himself. Now his first guess is to blame Nurgle and the demon blood, which he acquired all the way back in Hellblazer number nine, or his twin, who we just saw in Hellblazer number 40, the golden boy. Right. His memories of how the golden boy affair ended are somewhat hazy, as befits the rather mystical ending of that story. But he essentially cites Occam's razor here. The cause is right in front of my face. Yeah. Yeah, I I thought that was clever. How he kind of gets around having to deal with all the repercussions of the Golden Boy story by just saying that John only has a hazy memory of it. Right. Also, he really looks like one of those Doctor Who actors in this panel. I can't remember which one. Mm, One of the doctors? (laughs) Yeah, don't you think? I kind of see what you're talking about. I would have to look up which one it is. Yeah, I'm not sure. I wonder if, because there are panels in this where he looks quite a bit like Sting as well. Mm -hmm. I wonder if Will Simpson did a lot of penciling using reference photos. Mm, I don't know. And that might explain why so much of the time he looks like one actor or another. In another flashback, John visits a doctor. There's no tea, no niceties. The doctor knows he has bad news to give. He doesn't waste John's time. It's your lungs. I'm... I've double-checked the tests, and I'm afraid it's terminal. I didn't really listen to the rest of it. He talked for some time about growths and cell death and weakened lungs, showed me some charts I pretended to read, asked me how many cigarettes (laughs) (laughs) I went through in a day. 20 or 30, I told him. Ah, well, there you are, he said. Yeah, what I find interesting about this scene is that The doctor seems to be taking it harder than John does. John says he excuses himself because the doctor is clearly uncomfortable with him. Right. Uh, Walking home, it sinks in that the silk cuts have killed him. He throws away the packs he's carrying and buys more at the newsagent around the corner. Anyway, who was I trying to kid? Right. In the same walk home, he throws away his cigarettes and buys more. It's worth noting, perhaps, that like... It's obviously not very controversial that cigarettes will kill you. Right. But this is like very directly picking a fight with a real company, right? Like so- silk cuts are a real cigarette. Yeah. I mean, John's brand is what it has been. I suppose that's been free advertising for 40 issues. <laughs> right. It's the only reason I smoke them. <laughs> oh, those things all. Yeah. You know. John has an interesting speech here. Few people really think about dying. Paranoids worry about it without really understanding it. Victims of fatal accidents and murder don't have time to think. You really only think about it if you take the time to. And you only take the time if you know it's going to happen. That's when the thought of death takes up your every waking moment. What else is there to do? So that's an interesting uh, look at his own mortality. He's never really thought about death because he's been skipping one step ahead of it all these years. He's never really faced death. He's, He's cheated death. He's tricked his way out of death and patted himself on the back for his ingenuity. Is that the Wrath of Khan? Yeah. Get the hell out of here. (laughs) I'm Eric, and I'm the verdict. (laughs) No, you brought pizza. You're all right. (laughs) (laughs) The pizza can (laughs) stay. (laughs) We finished the pizza. Does that mean I have to go? (laughs) You're really outlawing yourself here. (laughs) No more life, he says. No more seeing his friends, even though his friends are already dead. His friends who aren't dying are already dead. The specific friends he's talking to we're going to see in a minute here. As we get a flashback to John's dream from last night. He's in the dark, realizes he's in his coffin. He feels it lowered into the ground and buried. And then there's a light, a voice calling, John? Yeah, a hand reaches out for him. Ooh, that's a cool piece of imagery. Once we know who this is and what happened to her hand that he was holding. Right, it's Astra. And the last time he was holding hands with her, she lost it. Right, the gate of hell closed on her arm. Yeah. Or I guess maybe that's the only part of her she didn't lose. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, Astra leads her into a sort of undead space where all of John's old friends who got fucked over in his adventures... Right, this is the Newcastle crew, most of whom got killed either in Newcastle or in the years since, as well as John's father. Right. I'm guessing this guy with the long hair here is supposed to be Gary Lester, even though he looks bulkier than Gary ever did. I noticed that Richie is not here. Maybe because John knows that his soul's not in the afterlife, he turned into a demon. Oh, yes. That is a thing that happened. And they explain that they are not ghosts. Or they try to explain that they're not ghosts. John starts insulting them while they're halfway through it. <laughs> He won't even take a yelling at from his ghost, seriously. Yeah, so they explain that since they're not haunting him anymore, they're free to actually beat the crap out of him. And they commence doing that. Right, right. They're not haunting him because he's not alive anymore. They're all in the same place, and that means they can get really nasty. He wakes up from the nightmare, and he can't calm his nerves until he finds his packet of cigarettes and lights one in the dark. Later, John pukes up blood for hours. Haven't had any sleep since, thank god. He thought he was over the worst of the dreams. That's a reference to Sandman number three, in which the bad dreams were taken away from him by Morpheus. Morpheus, the dream king. But he says the real nightmare, that began today. He decides to go to the cancer ward. Get some kind of idea what it's like. He's hoping to see that he has a peaceful, quiet death in store for him. Yeah, but once he sees it, he swears he won't die like this, won't go quietly. Old men dying before their time. Or dying men old before their time. Whatever. I won't die like this, I thought. Coming here was a mistake, as if I expected some easy way out. Some calm and quiet death. I'd be better off cutting my throat. I had to get out of there. His thoughts are interrupted by- Oi, Blondie! Yeah, and here we meet Matt. I guess if you're a guy dying in a hospital bed in a Vertigo comic, you gotta be named Matt. Oh, Matt Cable. Right. Yeah, now this is an old guy who is dying of cancer. He bums a cigarette off John. Yeah, and John finds that he doesn't feel compelled to lie to Matt. Right, he sort of instantly likes him, and so instead of spinning a lie, he tells him the truth, that he's considering spending his last days here. They chat for a good while. Yeah, Matt's a former army guy. He fought at Alamein. Do you know what that is? I remember noticing that Matt's war experience was apparently World War II. Which yeah. Which really I, struck me with how old this comic book is. Right. This is from the 80s. So, guys... Right, who, 1990. Oh, is it 1990? Okay. Yeah. So, guys who fought in World War II would have still been dying before their times. Right. But yeah, I I am not immediately familiar with it, but I assume it's part of the African campaign. Yeah, he makes another reference to that campaign. John says he's not moving into the ward. Not suicide, Matt hopes, because that's a mortal sin. Which is an interesting note considering the Constantine movie is largely based on this story. And in that movie, the reason he's going to hell is actually attempted suicide. Right, when he was an angsty teenager, right? Yeah. Did you call it the Constantine movie? Yeah. Yeah. That movie is called Constantine. Oh, that's true. They pronounce Constantine differently in the film. Isn't he not not even British? Yeah, he's American. We should watch it. (laughs) Yeah, we're getting to the point now where it's time to recap the Constantine movie. Constantine movie. The movie Constantine. Constantine. In comparison to the comic book storyline that gave it breath. Well, John says he's not going to kill himself. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He promises to visit soon, and he leaves the hospital, and he begins considering his last resorts. Cut his life into pieces. (laughs) No, man. No breathing? (laughs) Well, that's his problem. Suffocation, no breathing. He says he has several ideas, although he doesn't believe any of them will work. Uh, Now we see John getting a phone call from a Dr. Ellis. They found something weird in Constantine's blood. There's this... This amazing panel of Constantine thinking in little one-word thought balloons. It's demon blood. Over this incredible scowling face. They want him to come in for more tests. Find out what's up with this demon blood, man. He slams the phone down, shouting, Arsehole! I imagined what he'd do when he got hold of a couple of pints of the shit, the most dangerous toy on earth in the hands of a quack, and then his bosses, and then somewhere down the line, the military. That was what the pathetic, piss-poor system had to offer me then. Slow death in a ward full of no-hopers, bombed out of my head on prescribed heroin while some dick-end killed millions with my blood. Screw the lot of them. Their way was worth bugger all squared. I'd try mine. Yeah, Constantine's rather cynical about the system and the man. That part remains consistent. And his storming out of the apartment brings him to Frank's Cafe brings us back to the beginning of the story. Right. So he's sitting there, thinking about things he could try, favors he might call in. Though show to sell in the old soul, I've never heard of a way of getting out of this one. When all of a sudden, he is accosted by the owner. Yeah, he sat there for two hours with only one cup of tea. No chance of a refill, then. Yeah, I enjoyed him smart-arsing at this guy. He complains that the reason he hasn't drunk the tea is that it's cold, which it's cold because it's been sitting there for two hours. I may be dying of cancer, but I can still get a laugh out of baiting morons. That's a good sign. No, it's not. And this is where he decides, I'll claw and scratch for any chance of life, no matter how remote. Even so, he knows in his heart of hearts that I'll fail, that I'm going to die. And that's where we end the issue on John resolved to try, but with no real sense of hope. Yeah, there's a nice symmetry here of it beginning and ending with John thinking how he's gonna die. Yeah. Heck of a first issue. Yeah, I was surprised at the amount of continuity in this one. My memory was that Ennis mostly left behind the established detritus of Constantine's life, but he brought back the Newcastle ghost, so we actually haven't seen in a long time. Yep. And John's father, as previously mentioned. Yeah. I want to talk about the art a little bit. I noticed that the entire issue is sort of washed out, almost monocolored pages. Right. The color in the next issue is going to be much more vibrant, despite being the same colorist. So it's clearly a deliberately chosen effect. Yeah, a lot of it is flashback. Mm-hmm. Worth noting. Yeah, and in at least one scene, everybody's a ghost, so maybe that explains why that one's all in one color. Right. That brings us to Hellblazer number 42, A Drop of the Hard Stuff. Written by Garth Ennis. Pencils by Will Simpson. Inks by Mark Pennington. Colors by Tom Zwicko. And a cover by Tom Conti. And there's a special credit on this one. Special thanks to Steve and Marie Dillon. Oh, really? Interesting. I wonder what that's about. Yeah, I don't know that they actually contributed specifically to this issue, but Steve Dillon was, of course, a long-time collaborator with Garth Ennis. Yes. First on this series, he'll be picking up as the penciler somewhere down the line here, and then on Preacher, and then on Punisher. This is a really cool cover. Long shot of the lighthouse, the sunset colors. We have this old tower and an inset of John. John is looking a little dreamlike, maybe a little drunk. Yeah. And there's the shadow of the devil over the water. Yeah, I should get it out and see if it looks any different. Obviously it has a title on it. But actually, yeah, the color is way brighter and more vibrant and floppy. Oh, yeah, interesting. It almost looks like it's been recolored. recolored or just brightened. Right. So we open on sort of a distilled image of seasickness, or perhaps I should say brood. Yeah, okay, so John Constantine's on a boat. Take a good hard look. And he has this lager, which is green, and it's sloshing side to side on the table and he opens with the narration, I'm not finishing that. Yeah, he's feeling very sick, partially because he's dying of lung cancer, and partially because he's taking the ferry to Ireland in the middle of a storm, and partially because this logger isn't very good, and he really shouldn't have had one when he was feeling like this anyway. Now he's on the ferry to Dunlaera, Ireland, and basically between the tossing of the sea and the trucker sitting next to him with a plate of greasy sausage and eggs, he ends up puking over the side. This is a slightly hard bit to understand, but it seems as if the trucker did that on purpose. He's got kind of a smarmy look on his face. It looks like he's maybe pushing the tray subtly towards John. Yeah, and we can see him laughing when Constantine bolts from the table. He obviously doesn't know John's dying of lung cancer, but maybe he could see that he was sickly and decided to pull this little joke. Seasick, yeah. And John certainly takes revenge on him, as if he did it intentionally. I want to mention that here on the title page, as we have a full page spread of Constantine reeling against the rail of the boat. He says, the last thing I need right now is a drink. Yes, we're already getting down to this issue's theme. So the ferry has arrived, and in a nice little one or two panel background story, we see The same trucker complaining now that his tires are flat, while John walking by thinks, petty revenge, there's nothing like it. Yeah, and we find out he hasn't been to Ireland since 1983, and that was the last time he saw Brendan Finn. Right, he's here to see his old friend Brendan, who is an Irish sorcerer. And maybe, with a bit of magic, he'll be able to do something about John's lung cancer. So, he heads to Brendan's place, which is this beautiful old abandoned lighthouse. Right. They have to go past Ennis Carey. I thought that was kind of funny. Oh, <laughs> okay. It's a real place, but it's also Garth Ennis's name. Yeah. And we get this really cool panel of him arriving at the lighthouse with the old plaster cracked and the ivy climbing up the walls and the sun setting behind it. Yeah, looking pretty awesome. He knocks on the door using the knocker, which is sort of a demonic looking knocker. Yeah, devil-shaped door knocker is a recurring element in Neil Gaiman's stories. And here it is, too. And, uh, Brendan Finn answers the door. He is a jolly-looking, slightly portly man. Now, although John wants to get right to business, Brendan insists on catching up first. Over a drink, of course. Right, he, uh, he recommends having some whiskey first before they get into the pachin to season your guts. John notices as they... Chat and drink that Brendan is in bad health, pale with burst blood vessels, probably due to the drinking. They catch up regarding old friends and lovers. Brendan mentions Anna. Emma, Brendan. And no, she died. Yeah, that's Emma from the Newcastle crew, so they really haven't caught up in quite a while. Right. Emma has died, so has John's father, so have Richie and Gary. And Brendan's girlfriend Kit has left him. Yeah! Now, John reminisces for a couple of pages about Kit. He used to like her. She was the only one of his friends, significant others, who didn't blame John for getting their man into danger. Yeah, he liked the two of them together as a couple. And whenever he needed to kind of hide out from his life or reset, he would visit them. Yeah, his description of Kit shows that she really made an impression on him. There's a cute little moment here where Brendan is saying that he got rid of everything that would remind him of Kit while John is picking up a framed picture of her. From the shelf. Yeah, very thorough job he did there. He guides John down into the wine cellar. John is saying that the stairs are a bad idea, or maybe that the wine is a bad idea for his liver. In any case, Brendan is unconcerned and he refers to this fantastic collection of wine as bottled sunshine. Bottled liver failure, more like. John's kind of suddenly conscientious of their bad habits uh, now that his smoking is killing him. Forgive him, Lord, for he knows not what a philistine he is. And he compares his booze collection to John's habit of trying his luck against the powers of hell. You've got your magic and your trickery and your scams, and I know you love it, just seeing how much you can get off with each time. You live for it, right? It's almost like a religion for you. I like this idea that John has his own religion, and it's tricks and nonsense. (laughs) Yeah, again comparing their bad habits with the bad habit of throwing oneself into danger. Indeed. They reminisce about old adventures. There's a mention here of the Haunted Amplifier at the Sex Pistols gig. Right, and they convinced Malcolm McLaren to let them do an extortion on it? No, extortion is what was really Extortion going. is what they were doing. <laughs> <laughs> Exorcism. Exorcism, yeah, there you go. Okay, so they head down into this basement below the wine cellar, which we learn that Brendan discovered one night when he was uh when he was so rightly that he fell through the bloody floor yeah and there's a kind of a counterpoint to john's religion of trickery where they talk about how brendan's religion is booze john says he's not a church going man but this secret sub basement turns out to be some kind of shrine blessed by st patrick yeah he didn't let any bricklayers in he did all the work himself right brendan shored up this room so that he could use it there's a pool in the middle of the floor which is holy water So Brendan has a little table here, and he does a little sorcery. A changing spell, John notes, that will end when the candles on the table go out. Yeah, they have a bottle of wine, which he refers to as plonk, and says will be for later. Now Brendan demonstrates the changing spell. Jesus changed it into wine, but I've all the wine I could ever want. And we are in Ireland, after all. He dips two glasses in the holy water, and pulls out two perfect pints of stout. Perfect. It's perfect. Perfect. The black and the white are parted by a razor slash of pure genius and the whole thing slides down like cream, sharp and smooth in liquid symphony as the taste rolls over the back of my throat. Feels like heaven. This is the gold standard for a comic book description of beer. <laughs> right. Who loves beer more than Wolverine? Brendan Finn. <laughs> and Garth Ennis, maybe. Brendan says that it's the real thing. He had a pint in a bar in Croydon once for his sins. He's implying that in England, the supposedly Irish stout that you get tastes nothing like it's supposed to. Ah. He also says for his sins, which is an important thematic element of the issue that he's sort of accidentally hitting on here, because the crux of this issue is going to turn out to be about how, how Brendan paid for his sins. Right. Brendan looks to me like a drawing of some famous Irishman. I am having trouble remembering who. Who's the guy who Cassidy used to drink with? Is it Brendan something? It is Brendan Brendan something. Brendan Behan. Brendan Behan. What do you think? It could be. It could be supposed to be Brendan Behan. Their line's a bit different. Well, they both have the little uh, widow's peak. Yeah, Behan has a long, straight nose, and Brendan really doesn't. If it was a visual reference to Brendan Behan, I wonder if that would be... Garth direction or Will Simpson's decision. Hmm. Ennis is obviously enough of a B-Han fan to have put him in person into an issue of Preacher. Right. Okay, so John and Brendan have a few more pints of the Magic Stout and get really drunk, or at least fairly drunk. And it's at this point that John finally brings up what he came for. He hopes Brendan has some sorcery that can cure his cancer. And I thought you might, well, you might know a way to get out of it. I'm not that keen on snuffing it, mate. Yeah, you want me to... You think I might know some spell or something? Cure cancer? Uh-huh, that's it, all right. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell's so bloody funny? I'm sod and dying. Oh, John, dear God, John. You want me to save you with magic, right? Cure your cancer? John, all of a sudden I was going to ask the same thing of you. I'm dying, mate. The liver's packing up on me. Probably tonight. He planned this perfectly. Yeah, so they both came to the other for help. Neither can help the other. Nothing left to do except get sloppy drunk and spend their last night together. Right. They just say, fuck it. John says, I pinned all my hopes on Brendan. And I'm sure he did the same thing with me, and what a waste of time it turned out as. And thank Christ we did it, because I'm pissed and happy and with my mate. Thank bloody Christ. This is also kind of introducing an idea that we're going to see again in this story, that when you're dying of cancer, you know the day that it's going to happen. Yeah. Well, he's dying of liver failure. Oh, yeah. He doesn't say it's liver cancer. He just says he's dying of liver failure. He says his liver's packing up on him. Okay. He's going to stop doing liver things anymore. (laughs) You need a liver to live. He's not a liver. That's why. (laughs) He's called that. He's not going to be a liver anymore. Terrible. Terrible. So they have one last pint. right, then. Time for another. I'll do my best, Brendan. I'll do my best. You will indeed. You'll have one more pint of perfect stout with me before I go, John Constantine. Slash Cheers. Brendan sits down, tells John to let himself out. See you soon. He knows John's dying, too, and he knows they're both going to hell. I'm drunk and I'm dying, and I've just lost another friend. John heads upstairs through the trapdoor, heads for the door of the lighthouse, and on his way out, he encounters the first of the fallen. This is the first appearance of the first of the fallen. Yeah, even though this is the first time we've seen him, we know him. That's basically what I was going to say. Like, the way that he is drawn, the way that he is framed and introduced, there's no mistaking this tall, dark gentleman who's standing in the door of the lighthouse. This is the devil wearing a blouse. I might call it a scheme. <laughs> <laughs> I said, gentleman. <laughs> It isn't necessary that you invite me in, but it would be simple decorum. I'm looking for Mr. Finn, just below the wine cellar, hmm? He's not a... he isn't in any sort of state to talk. He doesn't have to be. I'm not here for his wit. I'm here for his soul. So we've mentioned before that in various DC Vertigo comics, hell is ruled by a tribunal. In this Constantine comic, hell is ruled by a tribunal, but it's not the same one we saw in Sandman number four, when Sandman went to hell. And this first of the fallen is not Lucifer. He claims to be older than Lucifer, to have been in the pit when the fallen arrived there. Hence the name. Mm. Now as they head down to the basement together, John and the devil, the first decides to mention that he has recently made the acquaintance of John's father. Dad? Oh yes, Mr. Constantine. Dad is condemned by his hatred for his own son. He's in hell. That. Is. It. You're not getting away with this, you smug bastard. One way or another, you got my friends and you got my dad, but not Brendan. Not this one. This one deserves to get away, and he will. Drunk as I am, I'll see to it. You'll be sorry you pissed me about, you piece of shit. Yeah, so the first is a colossal dick. As soon as he meets John, just drops a mention that his dad is suffering in hell. Right. And he goes on to explain the arrangement that he has with Brendan. Essentially, Brendan had made a deal with the devil. He got the knowledge and power to amass a world-class collection of booze. And the first got his soul. A rather old-fashioned arrangement, but he was an old-fashioned man. It appealed in a... nostalgic way, I suppose. There was one little clause, though. Mr. Finn insisted that I take his soul by midnight on the day he died. Right, the first has to take his soul personally and he has to do it by midnight. John is seen checking his watch, seeing that midnight is five minutes away. If I didn't, the whole arrangement would be null and void, and he would go to heaven. I imagine he thought himself a great man indeed to bargain with the devil. That appealed, too, and I indulged him, if only to sweeten the deal. A little extra incentive. I'm sure he dreamed of somehow outsmarting me. Many mortals think that way, as I'm sure you're aware, But they don't outsmart me, and I'll tell you why. They're mortal. And to be mortal is to be stupid, proud, conceited, and ultimately pathetic. And there's nothing more pathetic than a drunkard. First adds to his record of being a dick here by insulting John's friend who just died in front of him. Not to mention his entire species. Now, John has an offer for the first. He suggests they share a drink of the magic stout, joking that. He's always wanted to drink with the devil, and now he has the chance to put Brendan's whole life of drinking into the shade. Mr. Constantine, you are sly. A drink with the devil is nothing less than you deserve. It's really the cruelty that seems to appeal to the first here, the idea of rendering Brendan's life a waste, a sham. Right. Constantine pretends to be a jerk, and First of the Fallen immediately goes for it. Always ready to indulge humanity's worst impulses. So, they toast, they drink, and after the first finishes his glass, John reveals the changing spell. If the candles go out, the beer turns back into holy water. Really? What? We get an amazing cat that swallowed the canary grin from John here. I want to mention that the first of the Fallen says that the beer is amazing as well. Actually, he says it's splendid. This next page is mostly just action. John kicks over the table, and the candles go out. Ah! Constanta! The beer turns into holy water in the first's belly, and he writhes in pain. Oh yeah, we never drank the wine, did we? John smashes the bottle of wine on a nearby stone pillar, and shoves it into the devil's face. Here's to you, our soul, he says. But the agony is not his triumph as he falls into the spring of holy water. Yeah, and basically just dissolves. We see a shot here of the First's blood floating on the surface of the holy water. Back to hell to lick his wounds, John narrates, and that's what happens when you're stupid, proud, conceited, and ultimately pathetic. Clock strikes midnight, or John's watch strikes midnight anyway, and he did it. The deal is forfeit. Brendan goes to heaven. Your arse is out of the fire. Your soul, too. Somewhere far away, there's a clink of glasses. For a moment, I felt young again, like the booze had brought back the Constantine that used to be. But, John realizes, the first is back in hell, and now he will have no mercy for Constantine. Before this, I didn't want to die. Now I don't dare. So, it's time to get serious about not dying. Well, that was a lovely story. Yeah, that's such a good issue. It's in the middle of the story arc, but it stands on its own quite well, and this is Where we really see what Garth Ennis can do as the writer on this book, crafting a a nice little drunken fairy tale for us. It's a story that works with John as the trickster and a story that works with John as a working class, salt of the earth type. Yeah, sooner or later, and maybe we don't have quite enough ammunition yet to really cover this as much as we need to, but Garth Ennis's Constantine is a bit of a Cassidy like figure. Or maybe we should say that Cassidy is a bit of a Constantine type. Yeah, that's fair. Ennis's love of, well, drinking and bars for one thing, but masculine friendship expressed through drunken revelry and troublemaking is a thing that comes up over and over again. Right. So, Hackbuster 43, Dangerous Habits Gamma. <laughs> this isn't the age of apocalypse, is it? This is Friends in High Places, written by Garth Ennis, pencils by Will Simpson. Inks this time are by Malcolm Jones III, colors by Tom Zuiko, and the cover by Tom Conti. Malcolm Jones III from Sandman. Yeah. This cover brings us back to the city, uh, but this time it's a much more posh view of the city. Much nicer and more scenic. Yeah, an idyllic park with a horse-drawn buggy traveling through. But on the right here, overlooking the scene, is a giant statue of a barbarian king with a wolf headdress and a cow skull belt. The insert is once again Constantine's face, this time lit from below as if telling a spooky story. So we open on Constantine's face, sweating profusely. John remembers Matthew, the boy from the fear machine who was afraid of cancer. But he didn't know what cancer was, so he just sort of pictured a big ugly monster. Yeah. Well, John says, Matthew is afraid of cancer. I can see why. And we get a full page splash. This is also the title. Uh, The title is Friends in High Places. And it's John basically being ripped apart by one gigantic mass of tumors. Right. John's entire body converted to a massive tumor. It's pretty horrifying. This page is yucky. That's what I wrote. I wrote Yucky Tumor Man, John wakes another nightmare. I wonder if Ennis wanted to bring back that aspect of the character that he has persistent, incredibly vivid nightmares. Yeah, or maybe it's just an easy way, you know, you have to rub in the fact that he's dying. Yeah, to get into his head on this issue. Right. So it's been a month. The cancer is really starting to kick in, making him feel like shit. He thinks, in the narration bubbles, that the person he's meeting is an hour late. The person oh yeah he uses an ellipsis there that's cute 50 minutes actually Jesus she says so she was reading his narration boxes which means that she's got some kind of psychic powers she's also I think maybe you disagree but judging by the fact that she's drawn with almost no lines on her face mm-hmm. I think she's supposed to be a sort of inhumanly beautiful yeah I think that's a fair assessment. So this is Chantanelle, aka Ellie. She's a succubus, and although she and John are apparently old friends, this is her first appearance. And as you said, she looks human, although unearthly beautiful. He points out that he never copyrighted it. the trick that is, of reading people's minds and completing their sentences out loud. can't imagine how he would pull off that trick. But I like that Ennis immediately starts filling John's world with history. We got Brendan last issue. We get Ellie and the snob this issue. All sort of old friends or contacts that he apparently has a history with, even though we've never seen them before. Right. Maybe she just means that it's his trick finishing other people's sentences without the uh, psychic part. Maybe because he's a talker. Yeah, perhaps. She upbraids him a little bit for smoking. Uh, Yeah, and for showing no humility. He's being kind of impatient with her, even though he's a, a lower order of being from her point of view. Ah. John brought the coffee, she brought the sandwiches. So they, uh, they split a lunch as they chat. She says good coffee, this. So I guess we can take it that Ellie has a British accent, despite being from hell. Well, she's, you know, living incognito in London, apparently. Oh, is she? I thought she lived in hell with the devil. She's been talking about the moods that the devil's been in lately. Oh, uh, that's a good point. I guess she drops into hell frequently enough because she's going to mention her boss's mood, yeah. Right, but I got the impression She was spending most of her time in the mortal world. Maybe demons just have British accents. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I did the first of the Fallen with an American accent. Or maybe a mid-Atlantic. Anyways. Yeah, so she starts talking about her boss, and how he's been ratty. John asks, how ratty is ratty? And we realize what boss she's talking about. Right, the devil who he pissed off last issue. You poisoned him with holy water and smashed him in the face with a broken bottle, you idiot. She warns him that the first is really pissed off. He almost never gets a soul he really hates. Most of those are good people. But when he gets a hold of John, he's going to take out eons of rage on him. Right, he's going to rip your soul to pieces, very slowly. John asks Ellie to intercede on his behalf. She thinks he's gone crazy. To even ask that. That's that, then. I'm screwed. He thanks her for nothing and leaves. Shit, she says. And she comes after him. As I see it, you've got two things to try. You can either try repenting your sins so you don't go to hell, and he can't get his hands on you. My sins? I doubt it, Ellie. The good lord would probably just speak down from my eye saying, pull the other one, John boy. Well, the other thing is, you could try and get the cancer cured. It wouldn't be much good in the long run, but you'd have a few more years before he got you. Yeah, now she suggests the elemental, which is to say Swamp Thing. Yeah, now I don't think the concept of the red, which is what John would be connected to, existed yet. Oh, okay, okay. Because Jeff Lemire invented it in his Animal Man run. Yeah, well, Ellie's idea here is not actually a bad one. Find a mystical person to purge his body of the cancer or regrow his messed up tissues. Right, and I'm saying Swamp Thing would be able to do that if John was made out of plants because that's what the green is for, plants. Right. But John's an animal, which means he's connected to the red, not the green. And he would need, well, I was going to say he would need Animal Man, but that's not what Animal Man does. He would need (laughs) some kind of animal elemental. Right, okay. Now, if you've read the essential saga of the Swamp Thing, number 21, Alan Moore's second issue on the character, The Anatomy Lesson, we learned in that one that the Swamp Thing is incapable of growing functioning human organs. He tried to, for himself, but they're just blocks of wood. Basically. Right. They think that they're organs. Or maybe he thinks that they're organs. But they're not. Anyway, John says that Swamp Thing would never help him because he's too busy and they don't really like each other. Yeah. Instead, he's going to have to turn to somebody called the Snob. Well, yeah, Ellie suggests the Snob and John is annoyed with her for suggesting it. Which, when we find out what the Snob is, is really going to be funny. I mean, I have met some wankers in my life, but that one is king. He looks very anime esque. Lighting his cigarette in this. Oh, yeah, he's got amazing hair in that panel. (laughs) Yeah. And then in the next panel, he kind of looks like Sabretooth. (laughs) John's face goes through a certain number of permutations under Will Simpson's pencils. I know, John. Thing is, he's just about your only chance left. He's pretty well connected, remember? The snob it is. Shit. (laughs) Okay, so John says she's okay, considering what she is. I don't think so, John. I think I'm just polite. Yeah, and here she has a devilish grin and her eyes are red, letting us know in case we didn't pick it up that Ellie is a demon. Before heading to see the snob, John is going to visit Matt in the cancer ward. He brings cigarettes. John is a bad influence. Yeah, I guess he doesn't know where um the snob hangs out at, during the day, only where he hangs out at night, so he has to kill a few hours. Yeah. Yeah, and he mentions here that visiting his friend in the cancer ward is a promise he has to keep. That is. Significant. Hmm. That's right, he made that promise two issues ago. Right, and it's gonna come back later on in our next Hellblazer episode. John asks Matt if he'd try anything for a chance to live. A bit more determined. A bit less of a doddering old heap of worm bait with nothing to live for, you mean? Of course I'd bloody try everything, son. Who wouldn't? Matt tells the story of how he found out he had cancer. Two years ago, he found out he has heart disease, lung cancer, and cirrhosis of the liver all at once. He was told to quit all of his bad habits, and he quit none of them, hoping to make things so bad it'd be nice and quick. No such luck. No. Instead, he, uh, had intense chest pains sitting there at the bar and shit himself. So, not very pleasant or dignified. Wakes up in the cancer ward, still alive. But do I wake up at the pearly gates? Do I? Buggery. So much for planning ahead. John talks about the snob a little bit. Matt's reminded of an officer he served under in the desert. He mentions here that he fought the Jerrys, so World War II. Yeah, this guy's name was Carsters. Am I saying that right, you think? Eh, close enough. Oh, that ends the podcast. Good night. <laughs> get, get back here. Hey, come back here. <laughs> yeah, so Carsters was brave, but he treated you like shit unless you were in one of the officer class. At one point, he tried to get the unit to charge a German panzer and found himself doing so alone. We'd all freaking legged it, hadn't we? With saw it all? we may have been, but we weren't thick. Next thing he knows, he's got ten pounds of explosive up his arse, and his bollocks are halfway to Cairo. They sent him home in a matchbox, if I remember rightly. Garth Ennis likes his war stories. Yeah, that's a valid point. This actually seems maybe a little shoehorned in here, but it's fun. Yeah, and John's having a good a good time with Matt, a good conversation with Matt, which is important to the overall story. And it ties in again to John's working class roots. This ponce that no one liked as a member of the officer class, and he goes on to compare him to the snob as he walks to meet him. Ten pounds of explosive would do the snob a lot of good, it has to be said, except it wouldn't even scratch the shit. Yeah, so he comes to the Cambridge Club. Shit, let's get it over with then. The doorman tries to stop him, but he pulls a little bit of Morpheus magic on him. Oh yeah, he He uses the endless trick. He makes himself be seen as appropriately dressed. Yes. There's a line here, as John describes the Gentleman's Club. Stupid relics of a bygone era that have far too much influence on this one. Considering who he's going to see, I wondered if that line was kind of a shot at religion. (laughs) I took it as a fairly straightforward shot at the Cambridge Club. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the elite. But in any case, he gets in. He has a strong influence on the weak-minded. He heads up this grand staircase. The inside of the club is quite lovely. And he finds the snob standing by a fireplace. Like he always is. He's been coming here since the club began, we learn. The snob is tall, blonde, and boyishly handsome. And he's standing with a man who is none of those things. Yeah, so as John comes in, this guy's coming out, and John taunts the guy as he leaves with the fact that this guy apparently used to burn down Pakistani grocers. At least John levels the accusation. Yeah, John apparently thinks he has something on somebody, having witnessed this meeting. He says, little mental note of that filed away for the future, if I have one. But we can tell he knows this guy because he calls him Charlie. Calls him by his name. Right, and he knows his last name too. He drops it later. John sits down despite the snobs' disdain and calls for a pint and a packet of salt and vinegar crisps. They don't have those here, so he has to settle for gin and tonic. We do not serve lager beer or potato crisps in these rooms, sir. (laughs) John has an unreasonably big smile on his face as he antagonizes this waiter. (laughs) I just love that. We do not serve lager beer. He's so proud. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so he seems to find the snob pretty unbearable, and the only way that he can. Stomach their meeting is to be even more unbearable. <laughs> so, at long last, he gets into conversation with the snob. That is to say, the Archangel Gabriel. First appearance, right here, right this now. This is not Gabriel's first appearance. This is his first appearance in Hellblazer, but his first appearance in a DC comic is Teen Titans number 45, where he gives Mel Duncan the Horn of Gabriel. <laughs> oh, fuck, that's right! <laughs> yeah, same universe, same Gabriel. God damn it. <laughs> doesn't... <laughs> Wait a minute, hang on. I, I think I remember this from Tighten Up the Defense. Doesn't Mal have to punch him in the dick a bunch of times in order to win it from him? No, Mal, Mal beats up Azrael, the angel of death. Gabriel shows up and gives him the heart. Oh, okay. He doesn't... Okay. He did not get his ass kicked by Mal Duncan. He did... <laughs> well, somebody did. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Mal Duncan kicked an angel's ass, but not this angel. Okay. Now, Gabriel already knows what John wants. John mentions Ellie and how her kind seem to have a better idea what makes humans tick than Gabriel's side. Well, and he mentions he's been keeping an eye on John. Or John mentions that he knows Gabriel's been keeping an eye on him. And Gabriel suggests John seek counsel from Ellie's side. They are more your type. Aha! Now we're getting to it. You going to help me, then? Of course not. Why not? Gabriel says John wouldn't deserve his help, even if he could grant it. John says the angels owe him favors, but it looks like angels don't pay those back. Debt's mean nothing to my kind. You wanker! You total fuck! Quiet. John demands an explanation. I want to know why I'm going through all this shit. Gabriel's got a pretty good answer. You are dying of lung cancer because you have been smoking 30 cigarettes a day since you were 17 years old and you are going to hell because of the evil you have done. Would you like me to remind you of some of it? Don't trouble yourself. It's no trouble. You tried to kill your father, amongst many others. You used your friends-like shields, then tossed them aside when they were hacked and shattered wreckage. You dabbled in sorcery and magic when it was forbidden. You have broken the rules, Constantine. It is as simple as that. Yeah, that's pretty harsh, but that kind of sums up the attitude of heaven in this comic book. John gets in Gabriel's face, yelling at him. "It's heaven's fault, humans don't measure up, he says because they made rules for people they don't even understand. yeah, he talks about the cosmic scales, and he kind of says, to hell with the scales and the rules. No having lunch on top of the cider house right, yeah, now Gabriel gets to his feet, looming over John. I am taking your stupidity into account, Constantine. It is all that is saving you. He's I'll accounting you. for dumbassness. <laughs> There's no accounting for dumbasses. He tells him that he's not killing him only because he knows how stupid he is. But he has a knife to twist of his own, and he drops his information about Charlie Patterson. tells Gabriel he hasn't looked closely enough at his last guest, who was a member of the National Front. I hope your dad doesn't know the sort of people you're out with, Gabriel. I don't think he'd approve. And this is the first time we get confirmation that this is Gabriel. Right. Okay, so the angel is distant, judgmental, and possibly a Nazi sympathizer? Well, I don't know. He seems pretty stricken when he finds out that the guy's a member of the National Front, so. True. So maybe, like, this is just kind of metaphorically calling out the way that religion or religious institutions have looked the other way toward oppressive regimes a little bit? I think you might be reading too much into it. I'm stretching too far. Yeah, I don't really know what it's supposed to mean. But in any case, it seems to work. It shuts Gabriel up. John goes out into the rain. Well, he gets ejected by this waiter. this waiter shows up saying that other guests have been complaining about John. Yeah, and so he has to leave. He should go somewhere where they serve lager beer. More fucking, more appropriate for him. For the likes of him. But John's just leaving anyway. And he heads out looking for some other option. He goes into the rain and he says it's good that it's raining because he needs a bath. Three hours later, plenty drunk, John has found no better options. He knows he's missing something, coming at this from the wrong angle. He shouldn't be begging someone to save him. Normally, he relies on himself. The problem is that I'm damned because hell has laid claim to my soul. No. No, that's not it. Hell hasn't done it. Hell's a place, not a person. It's him. But if I'm dealing with someone... Holy shit. Oh, that's sneaky. That is sneaky and crazy and up the bloody wall. But it might actually work. Is it jumping too far ahead to say that John realizes if he's dealing with a person, a person can be tricked? No, I think that's fine. And so John has a wonderful awful idea and that is where we're going to leave it. He orders one last drink at last call, drinks it too fast and then orders one more. (laughs) The bartender tells him that we've called last orders. Have one yourself. That's very civil of you, says the barman pouring two. All right, so that's the first half of Dangerous Habits. Setting the stage, Garth Ennis flexing his writer muscles a little bit. Yeah, lots of good prose and dialogue. I love the way that he establishes uh, unseen history for John in this issue, and I like the idea of John going around to his various mystical contacts, seeking help with his cancer. This issue does build up for a lot of pages to the conversation with the snob. Yeah, that's true. And of course, Ennis isn't just throwing out cool ideas. Ellie and Gabriel, at least, are going to be important later on in the run. Right. As well as uh, Kit Ryan. So, what exactly do you think it is that makes Hellblazer number 42 the greatest comic book? <laughs> well, I mean, it's got a unique tone all to itself. This sort of barfly legend. Mm, yeah. It's got lovely writing as it establishes in a very short order John's relationship with Brendan and really does a lovely job with the, the warmth between them and the amazing beer that they share. <laughs> right.
1: And, yeah. You
0: know, as I was sort of pointing out a moment ago, issues in this run tend to function on their own, but also lay groundwork and establish stuff that Garth Ennis can work with in the future. He's always working now and setting himself up something for later. Yeah, that's true. I think that the, the sort of dark fairy tale-ness of it is very cool. It's not my favorite comic book of all time, but I'll just go. <laughs> it's probably my favorite single issue of Hellblazer so far. It absolutely sells the idea of Garth Ennis writing Hellblazer. It absolutely sells the run that we are about to, we are about to receive. <laughs> <laughs> this bounty. <laughs> well, all right. I think that's a wrap. You got a Constantine moment? Uh, what's yours? Uh, my Constantine moment is this. Excuse me, sir, we have had some complaints from other gentlemen about your guest and his general behavior. <laughs> <laughs> mm, that's pretty good. He is offensive. Smelling. I mean, he smells bad. <laughs> wow. He does so many very constantine things in these three issues. But maybe the best one is sassing the devil to save a guy's soul. (laughs) (laughs) Is there a particular piece of sass you had in mind? Well, especially when he says, here's to you, when he hits him with the bottle. Ah, okay, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty Constantine moment. All right, well, in our next Hellblazer episode, John Constantine is falling into hell. But first, join us next week for Preacher, the man from God Knows Where. Be there. Vertiguise is written and hosted by Eric and I. Our music is by Kelly Joyce Fielder. I produce the show and Eric handles social media. If you like our show, you should check out our website, vertiguise.blueberry.com. B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. There's lots more episodes plus show notes on every episode. If you want to get in touch with us, and we certainly hope you do, we'd love to answer your listener questions on air. We'd love to hear what you'd like to see in the future of Vertiguise. So reach out. VertiGuys at gmail.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter at VertiGuys. You can reach me at blankcast shown. You can reach me at VertiGuys. I said that. <laughs> I was making it clear. Adding emphasis. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash VertiGuys. Rate us on Apple Podcasts, and we'll read your positive review on the air. But as always, thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks, everybody. I'm so glad Satan didn't show up. Oh, God. Isn't it grand boys, to be bloody well dead? Let's not have a sniffle, let's have a bloody good cry. And always remember the longer you live, the sooner you'll bloody well die. Look at the fly did you see the panels that cool comic art posted on twitter no it was the first panel of the first three issues of born again and the first one shows murdoch sprawled out on his bed and the second one shows him kind of oh, up. oh yeah his he's head. sleeping at the beginning of every issue yeah and then the third and, at, and at, that's at the end too they didn't point it out but like the last panel is him in bed with karen and then the third issue he's uh in the fetal position curled up on some garbage right he's sleeping in garbage yeah the first issue he's sleeping in like a penthouse and the second issue he's sleeping in like a flop house and the third issue he's sleeping in a pile of garbage yeah 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 it's a pretty good comic book <laughs> i just don't know how you can adapt it once uh america Face the man with an american flag tattooed on his face is dead <laughs> right yeah well yeah i mean they've given a lot of daredevil's best villains to other netflix shows right like they put nuke in jessica jones yeah. they put typhoid mary in iron fist Um, as long as he still gets Santa Claus and a vacuum cleaner, I think we're good. (laughs) You know, there's three three Daredevil villains you cannot give away. Bullseye, Santa Claus, and a vacuum cleaner. (laughs) Okay, well then, since you already know that there's a bad guy who dresses in a Daredevil suit, I can tell you, and this won't be too much of a spoiler, that... There is a part where a guy is vacuuming wearing a Daredevil suit. And I was like, yes! The Battle of the Ages! It's gonna happen! It's gonna happen!